Good morning. My name is Pastor John, the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm glad you're here to worship with us. Today I want to talk about the question, what did Jesus believe? What did Jesus believe? If you look around, sometimes it seems like every person or every cause, if they want some weight behind their argument, they say, well, Jesus would have been on our side. Jesus, he's pro this. Oh, well, Jesus, he would be anti that. If Jesus was here today, he would definitely do this. No, no, no. If Jesus was here today, he would never do that. For some reason, people, whether they're Christians or even if they're not Christians, they want to claim that Jesus would have been on their side. But with all this confusion about what Jesus believed, is there any way to know for sure? Is there any way for know for certain what he actually thought? Well, fortunately for us, we do have this book. We do have the Bible. Now, it doesn't tell us everything that Jesus believed about every topic we could possibly imagine. If you want to know who Jesus' favorite football team was, you're not going to find it in here. I really doubt that's true. <laughs> More likely, Jesus probably doesn't care about the results of the game, if we're being honest. But the Bible does tell us about Jesus, who he is, and it tells him everything we need, us everything we need to know about what he believed. If we read his word, we will find out what Jesus cared about, what he was passionate about. And in our text today, we're going to see three truths, three truths that Jesus believed, and we can know with absolute certainty that he cared about them. So let's find out what they are. If you're not already there, please turn your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5. If you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on page 511. So Matthew 5. And once you're there, verse 17, if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. Matthew chapter 5, page 5, little numbers 17 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. This is Jesus speaking to a crowd, and he says this in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we talk about knowing what you believed and what you cared about, we can only do that if you're with us, God. We can only do that if you're helping us to understand your word, if you're here, if your presence is with us, and if we see you clearly. And God, in order to see you clearly, appreciate you more I pray the same thing that John the Baptist did. He said, God, would, Jesus, would you increase and may I decrease? 
Lord, may you be with us. May we see you clearly as we look at this passage. And Lord, thank you for fulfilling the Old Testament through Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful gift of your word, the Bible. By your spirit, Lord, help us to obey your word so that we might have exceeding righteousness. Thank you that that is only possible through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's take a moment to consider to think about where we are in the Bible. We're back looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This is a passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is one of the four Gospels or stories about Jesus that we have in the Bible. This passage is the longest sermon we have from Jesus, the longest one we have in the Gospels. This is a model example of what Jesus preached about, what he cared about. And this week, we're looking at what the whole sermon is about. Jesus' call for his disciples to have a life of exceeding righteousness, of surpassing righteousness and goodness. Because of who Jesus is, his people should live differently from everyone else in the world. Now, we've looked at this passage already for a few weeks, and we've talked about the character a true follower of Jesus has. We looked at that in the section called the Beatitudes. And then the last time we were here, we talked about how God's people should be salt and light in a flavorless and a dark world. But now, Jesus is ready to launch into the body of his sermon. That was all kind of introduction. He's almost at the end of the introduction, ready to go into the main part of the sermon. But before he does, he gives us three truths or three things that he believed. And the first truth is probably the most important. What did Jesus believe about himself? What did Jesus believe about himself? What did he think about who he was? You know, some people think Jesus thought that he was a teacher, that he was there to teach others. Some people think, oh, Jesus thought he was a revolutionary. He wanted to start a social revolution in his day. But if we read this passage, we find out what Jesus thought about himself, what he thought about his role in the world. And Jesus thought, he believed, that he fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament. Listen to verse 17 again. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He did not come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill them. He came to accomplish their purpose. Now that phrase, the law and the prophets, it's not really one we use today, but it was a way of describing what we would call the Old Testament but that was the only Bible they had in Jesus' day. The law was a reference to those first five books of the Old Testament, and then the prophets basically referred to everything that came after. Sometimes they called it the writings or the Psalms, what came after, but they could just say the law and the prophets, and people would understand, oh, you're talking about our Bible, or what we would call the Old Testament. And the reason he's talking about this is because Jesus said and did many things that were controversial in his day. He was challenging a lot of the assumptions and beliefs that were popular at the time. And somebody listening to Jesus, thinking, you're, you're challenging the things that we're believing. You're saying things I haven't heard before. They may wonder, is he completely rejecting the past? Is he getting rid of the Old Testament? He's changing things. He's doing things differently. Is, does he want nothing to do with how, what the Old Testament said? But in this verse, 
he's making it very clear that he is not saying or doing anything that goes against the Old Testament. In fact, because of Jesus, the Old and New Testaments now fit together like two perfectly matched puzzle pieces. They're two parts of the one Word of God. Jesus is not against the Old Testament. To make that clear in that verse, he said the word abolish or destroy twice. He says, do not think I've come to abolish. I have not come to abolish. He's trying to be very clear that this is something he is definitely not doing. But he's not just giving his audience a denial. He's not just saying, I'm not doing this. He also tells them what he is doing. He doesn't abolish. He is fulfilling the whole Old Testament. And you know, that might be the greatest or the most outrageous claim that Jesus ever made. Jesus is claiming that the whole Old Testament is really about him. Now, those of us who are believers, we know Jesus was fully God, and so we know that he always existed. But from a human perspective, the people listening to him, this is a person, a human man, who, as far as they know, hadn't even been born when the Old Testament was written. Yet now he's saying that he fulfills it all. Now he carried out, he accomplished everything in the first half of the Bible. And if we read the Old Testament carefully, we can see this. In a little bit here and a little bit there, the Old Testament hints at the truth that would be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way. I know it's a little hard to see, but in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, Long ago and many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, now, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. As God revealed truth through the Old Testament prophets, he now completes his revelation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not one in a long line of prophets. That's what our our Muslim friends or our Mormon friends would tell us. No, he is the fulfillment of what the prophets said. In order for something to be fulfilled, to be carried out or completed, well, it has to be started beforehand. And Jesus is fulfilling the story that the Old Testament started. And you know, that changes everything. Because rather than abolishing the Old Testament, Jesus is actually making it more important for God's people. Because he's saying that Old Testament, it is all about me. It is all about him. Jesus believed that he fulfills every part of the Old Testament. If you've ever studied the Bible with me, either in a class I teach when we do like kind of a Bible study or in a small group setting, you'll know that I firmly believe that every book, every chapter, and every verse in the Bible, including every verse in the Old Testament, has something to say to us about Jesus Christ either about who he is or what he did or what he's going to do. He is everywhere in the Old Testament. If I tried to stop now and list every way we would see Jesus in the Old Testament, well, we would be here all day and probably into next week. We learn more about who Jesus is as we look at the works of God that we see in the Old Testament. If we read wisdom from God, we understand Jesus' mind through this wise counsel. We learn how we lived as we look at God's commands. We're humbled as we see God's awesome power and glory and know that that is reflected in Jesus Christ. Truly, all of it is about Him. In fact, 
some of the Old Testament passages that we might be tempted to skip over are actually probably some of the most revealing passages in the Old Testament. For example, there's sections in the books of Exodus, but especially Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that they have lengthy descriptions of things like rituals and sacrifices. And when we read them, we might be tempted to find that kind of boring. But the truth is, they show us Jesus. Because those rituals tell us about God's holiness and how a holy substitute is needed, a holy priest. Those sacrifices point to the fact that Jesus died as a sacrifice for us. He atoned, he paid for our sin by his death on the cross. The sacrifice of those animals looked ahead. They pointed to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross when he paid for our sin and our rebellion against God. And so without his sacrifice and without those Old Testament passages that explain why that's important, we would be unable to be restored to a right relationship with God. Our church's statement of faith is called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and it says this at one part, all scripture is a testimony, it's a witness to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Jesus is the focus of scripture, of God's word. All of the Bible is focused on him. That means that a true Christian can fully embrace both the Old and the New Testaments. They're not opposed to each other. The message is one and the same. The Apostle Paul would make this same point in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 31. He says, do we overthrow the law by this faith we have in Jesus? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. By Jesus and by our faith in Him, we fulfill, we uphold, we support God's law. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about, about how do we do that practically? How do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? How do we uh, apply what's there? And I'd be happy to have a conversation with with you about that. But the fact remains right now that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And by doing this, Jesus gives His righteousness, His goodness to those who know Him. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. But look what he's saying here. He's not saying that Christ is the end of the law, period. No, he says the end of the law for righteousness. What he means is that our righteousness, our goodness, our standing before God, it's based on what Jesus has done for us and nothing else. Nothing that we can do determines how God sees us. As the hymn says, the old hymn, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Let me ask, do you believe that same thing? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he has fulfilled the Old Testament, that all its promises and everything God has pointed to, that it comes to fruition in Jesus? If not, why not? Because rejecting Jesus is not a recipe for success. I would beg you, consider who Jesus says he is. He says he is the fulfillment of that sacrifice, the fulfillment of priests, the fulfillment of those laws. He is the one who fulfills them and makes it possible for us to know God and live for him. Ask questions so you can know him too and you can understand better and that you can have a relationship with him. With this verse, Jesus is saying he does not believe that one part of the Bible is more important than another. Jesus believed that he fulfilled 
the Old Testament. But that's not everything Jesus believed about the Bible, because the next two verses answer the question, just that one, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Did he think the Bible is a good book that has some interesting stories in it? Did he think it tells us a bit about God, but you know it has some mistakes and errors? Was he saying there's some parts we're supposed to follow and other parts we should skip over? No, Jesus believed that the Bible has authority and it should be obeyed. He believed the Bible has authority and it should be obeyed. Listen again to verses 18 and 19. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he starts here in verse 18. He's describing his view of Scripture's authority. And his phrase he uses there, my translation has, for truly I say to you, it clues us in. What he's about to say is extremely important. Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, God's word stands firm. Until the end of the age, until this present form of the world disappears, the Scriptures have authority. And here Jesus is confirming the whole Old Testament. He's saying it's all valid. He does not want his followers to throw any of it out. And he uses a very extreme illustration here to make his case. He says, not one iota, not one dot will pass away until all of the Old Testament is accomplished. Now, when he uses that phrase, an iota, your translation, older ones have jot was the phrase. It's a reference to the smallest letter in the alphabet. Iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and it may be also referring to its Hebrew equivalent, which was the letter yod, which was also the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If you look at the picture to the left, there's two Hebrew letters there. The one on the right, that's a normal-sized Hebrew letter, but the one on the left, that's a yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But the other phrase, he says, not even a dot, or some translations had the word tittle, a dot or a tittle, that refers to the least, the tiniest stroke of a pen that changes one letter from another. It's kind of like how the line at the very bottom makes an E different from an F, or the line across the middle makes a G different from a C, or even just a little line coming out of an O turns it into a Q. That little tiny change, that little stroke of a pen makes all the difference between one letter and another. So in other words, Jesus is saying that the smallest detail of Scripture will endure. No part of it will pass away until it all is accomplished and fulfilled. It will last until its purpose is achieved. On another occasion, Jesus put it this way, He said, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Every minute detail of God's word will be fulfilled and come to pass. All of the Bible has God's authority behind it because all of it is his word. Now, technically with what we're reading today, when Jesus talks about 
uh, this in all of Scripture, the law of prophets. He's really just talking about the Old Testament because that's the only Bible they had. But this applies to the New Testament. It, the New Testament is God's Word too. Near the end of His life on earth, Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but not Scripture, not the law of the prophets. He says, my words will not pass away. It's basically the same language He used in what we just read. So while what we're reading today is about the Old Testament, the truth applies to the New Testament too. All of God's Word will endure. It has authority. Jesus believed that. He believed that what we call the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the one, it's the authoritative, it is the true for all time Word of God. He quoted from almost every part of the Old Testament during his ministry. So if Jesus believes God's Word has authority, what does that mean for us? Well, what does it mean for our life today? Well, for starters, it means that we should trust this book. We do not have to doubt what this book says. We do not have to doubt its relevance for us today. If we want to know more about what God thinks, we should open this book. If we want to hear from God what He has to say about something, we should open this book. If we're confused, if we don't know what to do, then we should open this book. Since the Bible has God's authority, it is a book to be trusted. It is somewhere we can go to know Him, somewhere we can go to find out who He is, to know Him better, how we're to live. I encourage you to find a way, talk to others about how you can spend time in God's Word. So maybe you need someone to check up and you say, hey, have you spent time in God's Word today? Find a way to devote yourself to knowing God, to trusting His Word, relying upon it each and every day. But the Bible is not only a book to be trusted, it's also a book to be obeyed. That's what Jesus says next. In verse 19, Jesus is turning to that truth. This authoritative and enduring Bible is to be obeyed. If the Scriptures are going to last until the end, then they must be treated with care. His commands cannot be changed, edited, or deleted. They must be read and put into practice. He says in verse 19, whoever relaxes or sets aside, breaks or ignores the least of the commandments in the Old Testament will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In the words of seminary president Danny Aiken, he said to teach others that portions of God's word are no big deal. Well, that's a very big deal. And on the other hand, Jesus says that the one who does what God's command says, and the one who teaches them will be called great. The one who practices and obeys God's word, tells others to do the same thing, will be blessed, called great in the kingdom of heaven. If we're someone who's active in making disciples, that's not a scary phrase, that just means telling somebody else what God has said, helping someone else to understand God's word. When we do that, we obey what God has commanded in this book, Oh, then we discover true joy. Because telling others how they can obey God, that is eternally valuable work. It's work that lasts forever. If we build or work on something, that has value and worth. God has created us to work. But it's not going to last forever. But taking the time to tell someone else, hey, this is what God has said, and this is how you can live that way, that is a work that lasts, that endures throughout eternity. Because if we are Christians, we're going to live with God 
forever. And the more prepared we are now, the better. If the Bible has authority, it must be taken seriously. James made a similar point in his book, James 2.10. He says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles or fails at one point has become guilty of all. Now, many of the commands of Jesus, many of the commands that God gave us in the Old Testament, they were fulfilled by Jesus. And so they do not apply to us in the same way today. But that doesn't change the fact that in all of the Old Testament, we can find principles, we can find truth, we can find instruction on how we are to live. We can find that on every page of God's Word. Now, again, this is not something that we have time to sit and go through every single example of the hard passages in the Old Testament. I can't do that today. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about that or maybe a message at another time. But I'd be happy to talk to you about how you can apply all of God's Word to all of your life. The fact that Jesus died, that frees us from sin. But it doesn't mean that we have the freedom to then do whatever we want. God expects his people to obey his word. So do you? Do you obey God's word? I'm not asking you how many times you've read it. I'm not asking you how well you know it. I'm asking, do you joyfully choose to obey what God has said? Because it doesn't matter how well you know the Bible if you're not living what it says. Obedience is important to God. He gave us His Word to show us, to tell us how He wants us to live. Think about how uh, swimming pools often have a no diving sign somewhere by it. Is that sign there because lifeguards are killjoys and they don't want you to have any fun in the pool? Well, that may be true of some lifeguards, but that's not why the sign is there. The sign is there to keep you safe. Because it's by a shallow end of the pool. And if you break that rule, you have a high chance of getting hurt. God's commands are there to keep us safe. They're to help us grow into the men and the women that He wants us to believe to be. Jesus believed that God's Word has authority. He believed that it should be obeyed. So we know what Jesus believed about himself. We've learned what he believed about the Bible. But in verse 20, another big question, we learn what did Jesus believe about heaven? What did Jesus believe about heaven? What do we need to get to heaven? And his answer might surprise us. He says we must have exceeding righteousness. Exceeding righteousness. Listen to verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I said that first truth, what Jesus believes about himself, that might be the most important, but this one, this is the key theme to the entire Sermon on the Mount. The righteousness of Jesus' true disciples, it's to exceed, it's to surpass, it's to be even better than the righteousness of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Because it's only someone with that kind of righteousness who will see the kingdom of heaven. And these words would have been really surprising when Jesus said them. Because those scribes and Pharisees, they were the cream of the crop in the Jewish faith. The scribes, they were trained experts in interpreting and implying God's law. 
they were responsible for copying the law. They had to meticulously write it down, so they knew it well. They had, had to write it. That was their job. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were a religious movement, and they were committed to being separate from the rest of the Jews, not by living away from the rest. Some did that, but they believed in being separate by their faithful obedience to God's law, or at least as they understood it. And so they emphasized things like tithing, like being ritually clean and pure and resting on the Sabbath day. And to help in their effort, they added extra rules and regulations to make sure that their actions were pure. So to be a scribe, that was a profession, a job you could have, while a Pharisee, that was kind of a special group, like a club. So some Pharisees would have been scribes too. In fact, probably the most respected Pharisees were professional scribes. But Jesus' call for an exceeding righteousness that goes beyond these respected men that would have been shocking. It is shocking still today. What Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that being known for being righteous, being known for being good, being known for being an upright and moral person, that's not good enough. You actually have to be it from the inside out. You have to be righteous from the inside out. And that's a different kind of righteousness. This is the difference Jesus says, between heaven and hell. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was that their religion was only skin deep. They did the right things on the outside where everyone could see, but on the inside, they did not have a true relationship with God. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus will say this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You are hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly, they've just been washed, they appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They did the right things on the outside, but they were just as messed up on the inside as everyone else, if not more so. But what's really sad about this is that they didn't realize it. It can be very easy to criticize Pharisees. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a Pharisee. But remember, for most of these people, they really thought that their extra rules were helping them to love God more. They really believed that they were more righteous because they were doing these extra things. But all that really did was expose their bankrupt and their broken hearts. So between this verse, verse 20, and the one that came before, verse 19, Jesus is warning his disciples about two traps that we can fall into, legalism and lawlessness. Now, God's people can't live lawlessly. They can't do whatever they want, but neither can they do just what looks good on the outside and then expect to receive God's praise. They need a righteousness, a goodness, something that goes beyond that, that exceeds that, they need a righteousness from the heart. It's a heart that truly loves God, will produce someone who obeys Scripture. A list of rules won't produce someone who loves God. Now, rules and laws are good, but they're only good if the people who are supposed to follow them want to obey them. If a person does not understand the reason for a law, if they do not embrace a rule, if they do not want to obey it, then they're not going to obey it. Or 
They may take the other approach. They may not embrace it. They may not like it or understand it, but they might do it just so they can look good and feel good about themselves. But God wants more for his people. He wants them to want to obey him. He wants his children to want to live a righteous life. I was convicted by the statement from Pastor Charles Spurgeon on this passage. He said, believers are not to be worse in conduct, but far better than the most precise legalist. That's an intimidating sentence. But what he's talking about is believers don't live or choose to live in a righteous way because they feel like they have to. They choose to live that way because they want to. They find delight in giving up what the rest of the world values. They find a greater satisfaction in that they know God, than they can obey God. They find more joy in that than in fulfilling some temporary sinful desire. They're not focused on doing what looks good, but on an inner righteousness that shows the great work that God is doing in their lives. They don't live in fear of failing God. If I don't do this, God's not going to like me. No, they live in joy. Everything they do is serving the one that they love. In the very first sermon on this series, I, I use this quote from Pastor David Platt. It sums this up well. He says, what Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human effort. He doesn't want us doing more good things. He wants more righteous hearts by divine grace more righteous hearts, because that and that alone will lead to more righteous and good deeds. But how do we live that way? How in the world can we get a righteous heart like that? Well, it can only come from God. It can only come from a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. God had promised His people this righteousness even back in the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise. He will change your heart and the heart of your offspring. He will change you so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. We can't will ourselves. We can't force ourselves into a life of righteousness. We can't make ourselves have a righteous heart. God has to change our heart. He has to change our desires. He has to do something on the inside to make us into people who live for Him on the outside. And the only way that God can do that is if we have a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Because if we truly know Him, then we will give up everything else so we can know Him more and more. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Philippians 3. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. He wants to gain Christ, know Christ, be found in Him. And here's this word, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from what I do, but that a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith or that depends on faith. We are not righteous. We're not good before God because we obey what He has said. We obey God because we are righteous. I think that's the main point. We're not righteous because we obey what God has said. We obey God because we are righteous. 
if we're consistently living for God, then we know that He has changed us. He has changed our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount is not the only place Jesus talks about this. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man, except a woman, be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Another way to describe this righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes is to say that you have been born again. Your old self has died to your sin and you have a new life of living for God. And if that has happened to you, then you will be able to tell. Just a few verses after that, John 3, 8, Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, everyone who has been born again. In other words, it is apparent, it's clear, it's obvious when someone has been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you couldn't see the change coming, but like the wind, you hear its sound once it arrives. There will be results in the life of a true Christian. There will be change. This righteousness, this exceeding righteousness, it is proof of a relationship with God. But friends, that's a challenge for us because that means if you would look at your life and say, I don't know if my life is righteous, there's a major problem. Well, pastor, I've called myself a Christian all my life. But if you're not obeying him, if you're not living for him, there is a problem. Jesus' standard is not how long you've called yourself a Christian. Jesus' standard is exceeding righteousness. Last week, uh, Elder Wade Hutchison preached, and he preached on what Jesus considered to be the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. How do we know if we're doing that? How do we know if we love God? Well, here, Jesus says, if you have exceeding righteousness. Well, how do, how do we get that? How do we get that righteousness and goodness? You need to be born again. You need a new heart. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The mark of a true Christian is not that you said a prayer. It's not that you were baptized. It's not that you were a member of a church. A true Christian knows Jesus and is exceedingly righteous. They know Jesus Christ personally. His spirit lives in them. They live for him every day. The state of their heart has changed. Another pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it this way, you do not become a Christian just by from refraining, stopping from some actions and doing others. The Christian is a man or a woman who is in a particular relationship to God. A Christian is someone whose supreme desire is to know him better and love him more truly. Is your supreme desire to know God, your supreme ultimate desire to know him better? If not, Jesus is saying you are not exceedingly righteous. If it's not, then you don't know him. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying it out of love. When Jesus saves someone, he builds this righteousness in them. And a lack of that kind of obedience reveals a lack of a relationship with God. 
Now, let me be clear and clarify. We all stumble, we all fall, we all make mistakes, may have a short season of one particular sin or another, but a true Christian, a true Christian is growing consistently to be more like Jesus. When they're able to look at their life and others are able to look there and say, yes, that is a life of exceeding righteousness. A true Christian is and will be righteous. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll get into the sermon a bit more. We'll talk about what does this look like practically in our daily life. In chapter 5 alone, we'll go through a couple sections. They'll tell us that being exceedingly righteous means we resolve our anger. To be exceedingly righteous means that we do whatever it takes to kill and remove sin from our lives. To be exceedingly righteous means that we honor our commitments. If we're exceedingly righteous, then we mean what we say. If we're exceedingly righteous, we give up our rights, our preferences, so we can love others. If we're exceedingly righteous, then we love and care for our enemies. The rest of the world doesn't do those things, but Jesus' followers do. So do you know Jesus? Do you know this one who fulfills the law and the prophets? Do you trust his word? Do you obey it? Has Jesus given you exceeding righteousness? And if you don't think so, then please talk to someone about that. Talk to me or someone else. Pastor John, I I don't know if I would say my life is like that. Then let's talk and talk about how you can know Jesus Christ, how you can turn away from your sin and trust in Him for salvation. If you do know Him, though, well, then make it known. Make it known with your words, make it known by how you live, and make it known by how you worship Him. Thank Him for fulfilling the Old Testament. Praise Him for His Word and that it tells us about Him. And then worship Him for giving you His righteousness. Do all those things because He, Jesus Christ, alone is worthy.